hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. Hello, it's Patrick Cox here, and I have a question for you. Do you like lists? I love them. I love to write lists of books I've read, books I need to read, gigs I've been to, things I need to do this weekend. Sometimes the list is organized chronologically, sometimes thematically, and sometimes occasionally it's alphabetically. My favorite latest list is of songs that drive me nuts because I've heard them too often. There's God Save the Queen, that's near the top. Not the Sex Pistols version, but you know, the original. As a national anthem, it's not as ubiquitous in British life as the Star Spangled Banner is in the US. But it does pop up annoyingly at moments when you just don't need to be reminded about nationhood. Here's another song, definitely in my top five. Johnny Cash's A Boy Named Sue, which my brother, my cousin and me, we once challenged ourselves to listen to this song for as many times as we could tolerate. I'm not quite sure why. It was, you know, one of those childhood things. Anyway, we spent the best part of a weekend doing it. But at the very top of this particular list of my most supremely irritating tunes is this. I did learn the alphabet song and sang it very proudly. It's a way of teaching us the letters. It doesn't matter what order they come in as long as we know them all. This is Judith Flanders. She's a social historian, and she thinks a lot about lists, about the alphabet. And what she said there about the order of the alphabet, that it doesn't matter what order the letters come in, it doesn't, right? I mean, it's the order we learn, but we could just as easily have learned a different order, and that would be the alphabet. Unless you're part of a group like QAnon and obsess that Q is the 17th letter, and then you count the number of flags at a Donald Trump media event, and presto, it's 17. Unless you're reading in meaning to alphabetical order, who cares? So anyway, from birth, from the year dot, the order of A to Z is drilled into us, or at least those of us who grew up speaking languages that use the Latin alphabet. Occasionally, even with the Latin alphabet, there are fewer or more letters. Like, like in Danish, there are three extra vowels after Z. That blew my mind once upon a time. A to Z and its slight variations, they feel natural. We think there's only one kind of alphabetical order. You know, you take a word and you look at all its letters and you put it in order. And something else that feels natural, but maybe isn't. Dictionaries and encyclopedias that followed the rules of A to Z. In fact, alphabetical classification was conceived over and over again, always with different variations. It's something that has not been invented once. Everybody said, hey, fab, great idea, and done it ever after. But it was invented and reinvented over and over and over again. I mean, time after time, we see people explaining in the prefaces, say, of their dictionaries how to use the dictionary and making it perfectly clear that they thought they had invented this idea.
From Quiet Juice and the Linguistic Society of America, this is Subtitle, a podcast about languages and the people who speak them. Today, why the alphabet song is a permanent earworm for so many of us, and how alphabetical order came to be the thing that it is today. There's only one place I could start with Judith Flanders. I have to tell you a little story because the timing is auspicious. My, my daughter, as we speak, it's what about a few minutes past nine in the morning here in Boston. And my daughter this morning is getting a COVID test at her high school. The, the school is just about to start in-person learning. So all of the kids are being tested. And the testing started at 9 a.m. And everyone is given a time slot ahead of time. Um, and the slots, well, they could be organized in any kind of a way, I suppose. They could be organized by grade or guidance counselor or by the neighborhood where the kids live, which would be very convenient because you could bus people in at certain times from certain neighborhoods. But no, the kids are being summoned in for their COVID test according to their surnames A to Z slash A to Z. Um, my kid is extremely upset with me because she has my name, Cox, which means she's very close to the beginning of the alphabet and has had to set the alarm so she can be at school. <laughs> uh, by uh, 9.15, her slot is. So, so at least from her today, um, alphabetic order gets a massive thumbs down. Well, I, I had two different people tell me the traumas of their childhood, one of whom was named Anne-Marie Adams. And consequently, she said, whether it was first or last name, she was always called first. And the other, whose name began with a W, the trauma of in the old days when exam results were mailed out in alphabetical order, the having to wait endlessly because she was W. Oh, my God. So, so she would have to wait days or weeks? That's right. Her Adam's friend would have had the results long before. Okay, that's ridiculous and a bit cruel. See what alphabetical order can do? So I asked Judith, when did all of this begin? In one of the earliest places where we think alphabetical order might have been used, which was the Great Library of Alexandria, in about 300 BCE. They used what today dictionary makers called first letter alphabetical order, which is really rudimentary. It simply means that you put all of the books by an author whose name begins with A there, you put all the books by the author whose name begins with a B, and actually I say books, I mean scrolls of course at that point, over there. So all of the letters after the first letter don't count. And for nearly a thousand years after that, that was more or less the way most people alphabetized, if they alphabetized at all, which mostly they didn't. Now, while scholars in the West were mostly not alphabetizing their scrolls, the Chinese, well, they weren't alphabetizing anything because they have a different writing system. You wouldn't know it from particular books about the history of writing, like one which I will not name, but which refers to the Mediterranean region as the, quote, mother of writing. It also calls the 15th century German innovator Johannes Gutenberg the, quote, father of the printed word. 
the Chinese would have a thing to say about that. By the fourth century, the thousands of Chinese characters originally based on pictogram were being systematized. You could look up a character in a dictionary, just as you still can, according to its key character component, which is known as a radical. And then it would be further defined in the dictionary by the number of strokes that character had. Now, if that sounds complicated, it is. Believe me, I've tried. But if you're Chinese literate, this system follows a logic and it actually is quite straightforward. The Chinese, very early on in history, were on their path and ridiculously ahead of the game. And this is, truly, this is 800 years before alphabetical order begins to be the norm in Europe. Part of this was down to technology. The early Chinese were using paper, for example. They had printing with movable type earlier. They used ceramics or tin type much, much before Gutenberg did. And of course, they had dictionaries centuries before Western scholars were producing Latin dictionaries, mostly in the 9th, 10th, 11th centuries. Okay, so in Europe during this medieval period, there was classification, but this was religious Europe. Religion trumped language. It trumped everything. You have, from about the 7th century to the 13th century, you have this period of the great encyclopedias of the Middle Ages, and they were almost entirely created by churchmen. These are the literate people of Western Europe, after all. In the 13th century, you have a clergyman named Vincent of Beauvais, who creates this four million word encyclopedia called the Speculum Maius, the Great Mirror. And just to give you some idea of how long four million words is, War and Peace is about 400,000 words. So it's 10 times the length of War and Peace written by one man. I guess, you know, you don't watch television, there's time. The manuscripts, they were TV. It's just that only a tiny fraction of the people had the means to watch it or understand it. And these medieval scholars, they told a story of the world using grand metaphors, like the one that Judith mentions, the speculum maius, the great mirror. They are holding up a mirror to God's creation. They are showing the reader the glory of God. And consequently, because it is a reflection of God's creation. What you are doing is you are recreating the hierarchy of the world. So you begin not with angels, because angels, Angeli, begins with A, but you begin with God, because God creates the world. The idea that you would begin an encyclopedia and put God under D, Deus, sort of fourth letter down. There are two possibilities if you did something that crazed. One, you're a subversive and you are upending the hierarchy of the world. Or two, you're very, very stupid. <laughs> Who would be so very stupid? Well, actually, there was someone. There's always someone, right? This guy's name was Conrad of Mora. And in the late 13th century, he authored an encyclopedia called Fabularius. 
And it was different. The words and ideas he wrote about were organized alphabetically, up to the second syllable of each word, and then after that, by the number of syllables. I think it is probably the first one in alphabetical order. It's the first one I have managed to locate. But one of the fun things about this is the few geeks that there are in the world who look at alphabetical order, everyone has that I have read says, oh, I found the first one. <laughs> no, I found the first one. No, I found the first one. And of course, we're all wrong and we all find one slightly earlier than the one before, and I'm sure someone will find one that is earlier than Conrad. The problem for Conrad was that virtually no one read his perfectly alphabetized tome. People, and by people we're talking about religious scholars, they just preferred encyclopedias whose information was organized not on form, but on content, the content they were invested in. After the break, how alphabetical order finally broke through, give or take a setback, at the Olympics. Do you like this podcast? I'm assuming you do because you're still listening. And you know what? It's free. Isn't that great? Free podcasts. Amazing. But you know, like everyone, we at Subtitle need to pay the bills. And one very small way you can help is by rating and reviewing us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Just give us five stars, or one star, I guess, a star's a star, and write a sentence saying how great or terrible or mediocre we are. I like the word mediocre, though I'm not suggesting that you call us that. Please rate and review us. Thanks. Okay, fast forwarding now to what you might call the modern age. And you may be wondering, I was, about the Encyclopedia Britannica, which naively I thought was the first modern encyclopedia. It started to come out in the mid-18th century, but it wasn't the first encyclopedia. Judith isn't sure if it is actually possible to identify the first one and say that was the very first modern encyclopedia. But she says there were two really influential ones that came out in the 18th century, but before the Britannica. The first was the Chambers Cyclopedia, the work of a man named Ephraim Chambers. He was a tradesman. He saw that somebody had produced a sort of uh, a scientific te technical dictionary, and he thought, hmm, I could do that more generally and make some money, which he did very successfully. His was in alphabetical order. Then, following that, came in France Diderot and d'Alembert's great Encyclopédie. The contributors included people like Voltaire. They were very influenced by Chambers, but didn't really want to admit it because Chambers was a bit middle class. It was kind of embarrassing. They were intellectuals and Chambers wasn't. But they really did have to admit that they had latched on to what he was doing. There were still quite a few of these reluctant alphabeticists who believed that the value of knowledge was best conveyed in other ways, but who ultimately failed to come up with an alternative way of organizing that knowledge, which kind of became an existential crisis for some people. British poet and essayist Samuel Taylor Coleridge, for one, he actually laid out plans for an alternatively organized encyclopedia, but he never followed through on it. He was outraged 
by the Britannica. He thought it was a mess. Um, he said it was a huge, unconnected miscellany in an arrangement determined by the accident of initial letters. I mean, it's ridiculous, he thought, that Apple should be on the first page just because it begins with an A. It's ludicrous. And he thought that this breaking up of knowledge into separate pieces was damaging. He said it was like it was like a mirror, but one that's broken into pieces and it's on the ground. And so it shows you thousands of images, but none of them are complete. This battle over knowledge, Judas says, it struck at the heart of what we understood progress to mean. Could humans evolve only if they'd had a classical education? Or was it possible to learn in a new way? from an encyclopedia that presented knowledge in a more neutral way. It's not teaching you things, it's teaching you where to find out about things and how to look things up. This gave rise to an expression, an insult. A traditionalist might call somebody a walking encyclopedia. It means you're a know-it-all. It means your head is so stuffed full of knowledge Whereas in the 13th century, this would be a great term of praise. Here is a man who knows things. That term was always a, an insult, walking encyclopedia. That's extraordinary. I mean, you would have thought on the face of it, somebody like Thomas Edison might be described as a walking encyclopedia, um, not at all as an insult. Well, I think that the insult was basically, this is when knowledge begins to divide up into humanities and science. And I suspect that it's very much a humanities sneer. Edison knows how to invent light bulbs, but, you know, does he know what Aristotle said about whatever? So amid all this snobbishness about knowledge, our relationship to knowledge was clearly changing. Encyclopedias were creating all information equally. Knowledge was replacing God. Knowledge was God. And the value of knowledge was knowledge itself. The randomness of the alphabet, well, it just downplayed moral judgment. Of course, there have been attempts at bestowing value on the alphabet, and some of them are stuck, like AAA-rated stocks or, or getting A grades at school. But still, you can undercut those values. A is also for awful, abhorrent, atrocious. And down at the other end, Z can be for zenith. By the 20th century, alphabetical order had prevailed. But as the world became more interconnected, there were complications, like at the Olympics. In 1921, when the regulations were first set down, it was almost as though the organizing committee, despite being European and therefore of several languages, never really thought about the fact that there are countries which do not have alphabetical order. So originally the rules just said they come in in alphabetical order by country. Then gradually the rules changed to say they would come in in the alphabetical order of the language of the host country. 
Okay, that's doable, the committee thought. In a French-speaking host country, for example, the United States would come in not as a U country, but as an E country, Etats-Unis. We can handle that. But then came the 1964 Olympics. It was the first Olympics to be held in a non-alphabetic using country. It was in Japan. And they kind of just sort of shrugged their shoulders and said, ah, use English, it's fine. So that's what happened. And it wasn't until 1988 in Seoul that for the first time, a country used its own non-alphabetic ordering system. And in Hangul, the Korean script, it's a syllabary. And the first syllable is uh, what we would write as G-A, ga. So Ghana came in first, followed by Gabon. And then in 2008, things got even crazier for us alphabetists, because in Beijing, they went back to that fourth century system of what is the primary radical, and then counting the number of radicals in each ideogram for each country. And I must say, when I was reading about this, I had this sort of vision in my head of the American television network executives sitting in their little booth, going insane trying to work out where to put their advertising breaks so that they didn't miss the states coming in. Whether it's down to the Olympics or down to a thousand other things, we in the West are far more aware than we used to be that other people use different scripts, different writing systems. The internet, of course, helped make us more aware of that. It also changed our own sense of alphabetical order. With the arrival of online reference works where we no longer need to know whether L comes before or after M to look up somebody's name in an encyclopedia. I suspect that our reliance on alphabetical order is diminishing. I can't remember the last time I used a phone book. If I want to try and remember which politician is named Johnson, who might be the Prime Minister of England, but I can't remember his first name, you know, I just look it up online. So today, with the internet established, but still very much in its infancy, are we returning to other forms of organizing words and ideas, something more value-based, rather than just organizing things around those silly letters that words start with? I mean, especially in times of insecurity, like now, we feel the need to place more value on things. Are we doing that? Will we in the future? I'm not sure. I mean, some things are best organized without the alphabet, there's no question. It would be, like, really weird to list, say, your former lovers in alphabetical order. Verging on disturbing. Or even listing your friends or relatives that way. Families have trees to help us understand them. They don't need letters. But you know what? Even if you don't want to list your favorite books alphabetically, your computer may do that for you. A to Z is everywhere online. We may not need to scroll through the letters in Wikipedia, but the letters are there in their perfect, meaningless order. You'd really have to be an obsessive with a ton of time on your hands to change all the defaults inside your computer to force it to ignore the alphabet. The A to Z, it really has you. 
whether you like it or not. My kid, by the way, is still a victim of the alphabet, though her COVID tests are sometimes as late as 10 a.m. these days. Small mercies. Many thanks to Judith Flanders. Her latest book is called A Place for Everything, The Curious History of Alphabetical Order. It's a great read. Thanks also to Tina Toby and Alison Reed. Also to the World Public Radio Program with Marco Werman, where every weekday you can hear what's going on all over the globe. Subtitle is a member of the Hub and Spoke Audio Collective. That's a bunch of podcasts. And I want to recommend another Hub and Spoke podcast to you today. It's called Open Source with Christopher Leiden. I've been listening to Chris for years, and he's one of the best interviewers of any time or era. I like every episode of Open Source, whether it's on politics or culture. Actually, many of the episodes hit that spot where politics and culture intercept. One recent episode does exactly that. It tackles competing origin stories of the United States. Nicole Hannah-Jones is one of the guests. She's behind the New York Times 1619 project. It is so good. Listen to Open Source and all of the other Hub and Spoke podcasts. You can get more info at hubspokeaudio.org. Thanks for listening. We're on Twitter at LingoPod. Hit us up with questions and comments. And don't forget to rate and review us. Thanks. See you next time. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.